Hi, everybody, and welcome to Coach's Corner. I am so excited to bring you this week's episode because I get a lot of questions on friendship, how to make friends, how to maintain friends, what is healthy friendship, should I end a friendship relationship? And today's guest has written a book on friendship, a New York Times bestselling book called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. And she's studied friendship and the importance of friendship, how we make friends, how we keep friends, how we maintain friends, all the things. Her name is Dr. Marissa G. Franco, and she's known for digesting and communicating science in a way that resonates deeply enough with people to actually change their lives. She works as a professor at the University of Maryland, and her book, which I just mentioned, Platonic, came out in September and already made the New York Times bestseller list. She writes about friendship for Psychology Today and has been featured as a connection expert for major publications like the New York Times, Telegraph, Vice, so on and so forth. She speaks on belonging across the country. And belonging is such a thing. You've heard me talk about on the podcast before. Belonging is uh, something we need for survival. Way back when we were evolving as humans, we needed a tribe. We needed to belong. We needed each other to survive. If you didn't belong, if you were all on your own, you wouldn't survive. So when we don't have a sense of belonging, when we have a sense of loneliness, when we feel like we don't have our community, don't have our tribe, it can create a lot of anxiety in us. And it can really rev up our nervous system because on a biological level, our brain's going, wait, if I don't have belonging, if I don't have people, I may die. I may not survive. So belonging and friendship is so, so, so important. And I really think you're going to get so much value out of today's episode, even if you have great friends. You think you are a good friend. I, I really, really encourage you to listen because it will just solidify your friendships even more. And the invitation that I give you at the end of the episode is to reach out and share this episode with a friend and acknowledge them and thank them for their friendship. And I give you another challenge or assignment or stretch, whatever you want to call it. And Marissa gives you one as well. So be sure to listen to the end. Before we dive in, I want to thank my sponsor, Organifi. You've heard me talk about them before. I love them, love their products, especially as we slip into fall. I'm really big on their immunity blend and also their gold blend, which is a mix of turmeric and all kinds of other yummy things. It's a great beverage to drink by the fire. Unfortunately, it's too freaking hot in Austin still as I'm recording this on November 9th. It is in the 80s. And I'm over it, over it, over it. So hopefully we'll get some cooler weather soon and I can enjoy my gold turmeric lattes. And in the meantime, I'll keep adding their green blend to my smoothies and their red blend while it's still hot. (laughs) So go to Organifi.com slash over it to get 20% any of your order or use promo code over it at checkout. Again, Organifi. O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash over it. Use promo code over it at checkout to get 20% off all your orders. All right. And now on to my conversation with Dr. Marissa G. Franco. Marissa, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be talking with you today. And congratulations because your book, which we will talk about, made the New York Times bestseller list, which author to author is a huge big deal. So congratulations on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. It's it's quite a feat. And those of you who, you know, maybe not be authors or know the writing world, it is like the Academy Awards of of authors. So it's it's we have a big deal on the show today. And the book we're talking about, <laughs> the book we're talking about is Platonic, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. And I have been looking for an expert on this for probably a couple of years because a question I get a lot 
is how do I make friends as an adult? And this is a question that is very close to my heart because I wasn't very good at it at all. A lot of my high school, middle school experience was bullying and the I Hate Christine Club, and I was very much a loner. I'd have one friend, definitely always felt left out, and just was really awkward when it came to making friends. And what is actually... In my 20s, my, my first husband, he was really good at having friends and they always hung out together and he was a good friend and I asked him to teach me how to like make friends and learned a lot from him and and then in my 20s and early 30s, just started having to ask people, hey, do you want to be my friend? Kind of like you do when you're five. Mm-hmm. And now I'm happy to say I have just incredible friendships, but it was something that wasn't easy for me and I judge myself for it because I'm like, okay, I can understand that making money can be challenging or intimate relationships can be challenging, but making friends, like we do that in kindergarten. We do that when we're three. What's wrong with me? Why is it so hard? So that's the first question I want to present to you. Why is it often challenging for us as adults to make and keep friends? Yeah, Christine, that is the big question that I get. And I think you're not alone. Honestly, I think sometimes we think everybody else has their friends, but actually the rates of loneliness are very high. So probably the more typical situation is that people struggle rather than feel like they have all the friends that they need. And part of the reason it's so hard is because when we're children, you know, Christine, it sounds like it was, it was hard for you when you were younger, but a a lot of the times people do say like, Oh, it would just happen more organically when we were kids. And That's because when we're kids, we have these ingredients that sociologist Rebecca Adams says are necessary for friendship to happen organically, which are repeated unplanned interaction. So I see you every day. It's not necessarily planned like school or and vulnerability, shared vulnerability. Right. So we're in a setting where we can put our guard down. So that's gym. That's recess. That's lunch. But as adults, we don't often have those settings anymore. Like we go to work every day, right? We have that continuous unplanned interaction at work, but we're not always getting vulnerable with our colleagues. We often only show them one side of ourselves. So what that really means is that in adulthood, friendship does not happen organically. And in fact, one study found that people that think it does are actually lonelier years later, whereas people that think it takes effort are more likely to make the effort and less likely to be lonely years later. Mm. Mm. What do you think, when we say effort, (laughs) how would you define effort in terms of making friends? I would describe effort as initiating. So not just waiting for people to come to you. So, you know, there are ways to be strategic about initiating. If we know that repeated unplanned interaction and shared vulnerability creates connection, in some ways we can choose to put ourselves in environments where that occurs. So If you pursue a hobby in community with other people, like my hiking group or my improv group or my language group or my mom's group, right? All of those things are giving you a little bit of those ingredients. But the thing is that sometimes, and this was like me in college, I showed up to one group once and didn't feel like anyone was welcoming and then never went back again. Now I would tell myself that about something called the mere exposure effect, which is our tendency to like people when they become familiar to us. So What that means is that once you join a group to meet people, it's going to be awkward at first because that's how our brains function. You're weary, you're distrusting at first, but over time, it's going to become more comfortable. The discomfort is part of the process to connection. It's not a sign to stop the connection. So we have to join that group that's repeated over time outside of work. And I think that can really help us make friends. But then the effort also looks like not engaging in something called covert avoidance. 
covert avoidance is you show up physically, but you check out mentally. Like mm. I joined the soccer group, but you know, and they always ask me to hang out after. And then I go home because I'm intimidated or I do hang out, but I'm on my phone the entire time. I'm talking to the one person I already know. Covert avoidance is I show up physically, but I check out mentally. So to overcome that, we also have to be like, oh, hey, you know, I'm Marissa. It's great to meet you. How have you liked this group? How long have you been here? Tell me more about yourself. Like showing that interest in other people. Mm, I love that, that covert, what did you say? Covert what? What did you call it? Covert avoidance. I love that. Covert avoidance. How often do we do that? Not just in friendships, but in life. I mean, yep. yeah, that's a, that's a huge one. How do you think just insecurity plays a role in making friends? So I like to ask people, what type of person, and I'll ask you this, Christine, what yep. type of person do you think is most likely to reject you? Um, reject me, like not be my, not want to be my friend. Yeah. Yeah. I don't or know. Or maybe not even not want to be your friend, but come off as if they don't want to be your friend. Oh, probably someone who's insecure. Yeah. So the people that are most likely to reject us are the people that fear rejection the most because these people that are always fearing rejection, they tend to assume it. They see it when it's not there, right? They go into a group and they think no one's interested in them. No one wants to engage with them or they're hanging out with a new friend and that friend's hungry and quieter and they assume it's because they're being rejected. And the truth is that when we assume we're being rejected, the worst side of us comes out. According to one study, we become more withdrawn. We become more cold toward other people when we think we're being rejected. So on the other hand, though, when researchers told people based on your personality profile, you'll go into this group and you will be accepted. That was a complete lie. But people became warmer and friendlier and more open. So it was a self-fulfilling prophecy called the acceptance prophecy. So our insecurities can really inhibit our ability to connect. And I, I would say fear of rejection is the biggest barrier to making friends because these insecurities, these fears that people won't really like or accept us, they fundamentally shape our behaviors in a way that makes this a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the more insecure you are, you know, the more you think other people don't like you and you're not going to be warm and friendly when you think no one likes you, you're actually going to come off as rejecting people and then they end up rejecting you back. Oh, that definitely happened to me because people would think I was just cold or bitchy or something like that because I was really insecure. And so I'd be quiet and withdrawn and, or that I was stuck up, that I thought I was too good for people. And if they only yeah. knew the truth, like inside, I was like so insecure <laughs> and please like me, please like me. There was no part of me that thought I was too good for people. And that was something I had to work on too in making friendships was making sure that I was smiling and I was open and I was initiating and I was engaging. And even though it, I had to push through the nerves um, and, and really remember, oh my gosh, like I'm not the only one that struggles with this. And the worst thing that can happen is someone's going to say they don't want to be my friend, but they weren't my friend to begin with, you know? So yeah, what's, what's, true. what's the loss? No loss. So Net zero. Let's, let's walk through a situation because I know I have a lot of listeners who struggle with the loneliness, who struggle with the awkwardness, who struggle with making friends. And let's say they go to an event. I, I don't know. Like it's some book signing or something like that. And there's other people there and they're, you know, or let's do this. Let's do yoga class. And you notice there's a couple girls that always talk in the yoga class and they seem to be friends and they seem to be friendly. 
and you go to the same yoga class and you really want to get in on the friendship and be social and introduce yourself. And, and sometimes you see them go for smoothies afterwards and you'd really love to do that too. And you know, they're, they're around your age. They look like-minded. They look like they'd be great friends. How do you do it? How do you initiate that without feeling like you're burdening them or you're breaking the click up and without being so paralyzed by insecurity that you, you don't initiate? Can you give us some tips for that yeah. scenario? Sure. Well, first of all, this is advanced. Breaking into the click is hard. (laughs) So we're starting at like level three. So if you're able to execute this, you should definitely pat yourself on the back. So you're going into the yoga class. The first thing that I encourage is mindset, right? So I just talked about how when you assume you're going to be liked, you actually become more likable. So first thing is to assume that they like you. Assume that they are interested in talking to you. Assume that they're going to be friendly. I like to Sometimes just remind myself of my own strengths socially, like I'm an insightful person or I know that I'm a funny person, whatever your strengths are, to make you feel more confident going into the interaction to help with some of those insecurities. Then I like, there's this method, David Hoffield, he's a CEO. He came up with this method called insight and question method, which is you share kind of a comment about your shared setting and then a follow-up question, right? So it could be like, man, I really like power yoga. Are there other types of yogas that you've enjoyed outside of power yoga? If you're in a power yoga class together or like, oh yeah, like I just walked here from my apartment. I actually only live 10 minutes away. Like, do you live close by? Right? So just something about your shared circumstance and then a follow-up question to invite that conversation. Right? And then the thing about it, it's really hard to force people to invite you, especially when you don't have a place in a group. So the best way to like make sure you're part of a group is to be the one initiating. So if you find that person that you really like being like, oh, you know, I was actually thinking about getting coffee after class. Like, would you all want to come with me? Would you all want to join me? Making that, taking that initiative, overcoming that covert avoidance like we talked about is really, really key. And, you know, I think we're so afraid of rejection. But Christine, what I know from the research is that we're a lot less likely to be rejected than we think. There's this study that had strangers interact and then predict how much the other person liked them. And it found that everybody, we tend to underestimate how much people like us. It's called the liking gap. Mm. And the the more self-critical we are, the more pronounced this gap is. So we think like our mean critical thoughts are telling us the truth when they're actually even more greatly distorting the truth. And, you know, there's another study that found that when people were asked to open up conversation with others on a commute, nobody got turned out, like not one person in that study. So Overall, the world is a lot more open to us than our brain is telling us. People are less likely to reject us than we think. And knowing that, it can help us take the initiative that's necessary for friendship and adulthood. Mm, I love that. So, okay. I mean, anybody that, with the yoga class situation, that's an advanced example. What would be a more simpler example in terms of suggestions for making friends? Because another question I get a lot is, where are my friends? How do I make them? I don't even know where to meet people. What recommendations do you have for that? Well, my first suggestion is always to reconnect because the person's already vetted. You have trust in them. The relationship will move more quickly. And the number one reason why our friendships end isn't because we're incompatible. It's just because things fizzle out. So scroll through your phone contacts, scroll through your texts from this time last year, you save your text and figure out who are, who are you texting that you would love to reconnect with and reach out to them because, you know, honestly, this is a funny story. One of my exes had 
he was, he got a random phone call from someone from college who he knew like maybe like eight years before. And he was really excited that this guy was calling him. And yeah, they were talking for like an hour. Later, later we found out this guy was in some sort of pyramid scheme and was trying to sell him something. But it was like really telling to see how, you know, my ex's eyes really lit up when he got this call of reconnection. And it's also aligned with the research, which basically finds that when we reach out to someone to reconnect, they tend to perceive it more positively than we would predict. You'll see this across the board as I talk to you today, that the world is safer than our brain is telling us at any right. given time. So so I like to start with reconnecting with people. I also think it's a really good idea, especially for people that are busy, moms, to try to connect with people that are already in your network, right? So you have your colleagues at work, you already see them every day, you have that mere exposure effect. They already probably like you more than if you were a stranger on the street just because they've been exposed to you more. Can you ask them, hey, I'd love to get lunch sometime. Would you be open to that? Or your neighbors, like if I have a neighbor, a new neighbor, I'll knock on their door and bring a bottle of wine and say, welcome, like, so happy to have you, would love you to have you over for tea sometime. Um, so there's these people in our network already that we can think about turning into friends by inviting them to hang out with us one-on-one -on -one in a different or new setting. Mm, I love that. I love that. And I... I want to repeat what you said. The world is a lot safer than we think, and people are a lot safer than we think they are. I, I often would tell myself back when I used to have a really bad social anxiety, no one's thinking about me as much as I am. <laughs> like no one's, it's not exactly. like, yeah, sometimes it feels like when you walk into a room of people you don't know, everyone's looking at you and there's this spotlight on you and it's so terrifying. And people really just aren't thinking about us and aren't judging us as much as we think. We're, we're harder on ourselves than usually anyone else's. So thank you for that reminder. Yeah. I want to shift gears just for a second and ask you, why is friendship so important? Why should we work hard to have friendship in our life? You know, I literally wrote this book because I was like, we are, to me, friendship is gold under our feet that we see as concrete. Like we really undervalue it. And it's a devastating loss to us, especially in a society that is so, so lonely. Because when the term friendship or platonic love was, was created, it actually meant a relationship so divine, it transcends the physical. So you know, it was seen as one of the most meaningful relationships of our lives. And we didn't need sex per se to keep us in it. And I think more generally, we see from the science that friendship, having friends makes all of our other relationships better. So, you know, if I make a friend, not only am I less depressed, but my spouse becomes less depressed, according to the research. Uh, women are more resilient to issues within their marriage when they have close friends outside of the marriage. And when you have conflict with your spouse, it impacts your physiology less when you have quality connection outside of the marriage. So we just need an entire community to feel whole. Like really, that's what the science tells us. There's actually three types of loneliness, only one that can be fulfilled by a traditional spouse. That's intimate loneliness. There's also relational loneliness, which is a desire for someone as close to you as a friend and collective loneliness, which is a desire for a group working toward a common goal. So what this all suggests is that, you know, if we're only relying on one person, like many of us have been taught to do, we're going to end up lonely. We're going to end up less happy. And our relationship isn't going to go as well as if we invest in an entire community. But the other thing that I want to share about friendship is it's really important for our identity that we have friends. Like for us to feel 
like we are fulfilling the sort of depths of who we are, we need friends because each person brings out a different side of us. So if I'm only with one person and they don't like cryptocurrency and I'm really into cryptocurrency, like that's a part of myself that's going to kind of start to wither away unless I find other people that have that interest, right? So investing in a larger group of people exposes us to all these different sides of ourselves and makes us feel enriched, makes us feel, yeah, like we just have a richer sense of our identity. And I think you know, this is something I really felt in the pandemic when I was living with my ex. It was just like, I felt this kind of malaise that I was, I was kind of becoming a, a narrow, I was having a narrow experience of myself. And when I would go on these walks with friends, I would kind of enliven, mm -hmm. I would fill with life again and just kind of almost like remember who I was because each person almost had like a, a piece of who I was that, that was kind of summoned in through our interaction. So that is another reason I think friendship is so important. Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. I'm curious about male-female friendships, especially heterosexual male-female friendships. You know, many people say, oh, you can't be friends with someone of the opposite sex. If you're both heterosexual, it, it, there'll be attraction. Like one person will end up falling in love with the other person. It just gets too messy. But I think back to when I was single and some of my male friends, and they were lifesavers. You know, they really were. They gave me that male connection without any of the complication. It, it, it did stay platonic. And when I share that with people, they say, oh, that's rare. That's rare that men and women can be friends. What do you think of that? I think that male-female friendships are of great value. We see from the research, actually, particularly for men, men tend to experience more intimacy in their friendships overall when they ha are friends with women. And the research clearly finds that women tend to experience more intimacy with female friends than they do with male friends. But men tend to experience either more intimacy with their female friends than their male friends or sort of equal amounts. It's kind of mixed depending on the data. So, so we see in this research that like men are able to find this deep intimacy with women who are in this sort of platonic position. So it is this, this way that, you know, being just friends across genders actually brings people this unique value, particularly men. But outside of, other than that, I think, you know, people really value friendships with men, between men and women because it gives them a perspective that they might not necessarily have as they're going through their dating life, they're getting new input. And, you know, I think it's unfortunate. It really is unfortunate. I think it really hinders friendship that we have this sense that, you know, if any if I'm friends with someone, if I'm a woman who's friends with a man, it has to turn sexual. And because if we have that belief, we're not going to make platonic friends. It almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to engage with you sexually. So I won't even try to be your friend because I think that the only way that I can be friends with men is if, you know, there's something deeper, more different going on, sexual going on. So I think that overall, I feel like I hope that we can get rid of that belief that, you know, just because we're friends and I'm a woman, you're a man, there must be something going on because I think it's really a hindrance to our ability to develop platonic intimacy. Yeah, I agree. agree. And I'm very grateful for my male friends. And they, and even my male friends now, you know, really help in my marriage too, because if there's, you know, something I need a male opinion on, it's really helpful to have that. It is. What about, let's talk about keeping friendships. Just like in relationships, we can have expectations in friendships. We can expect our friends to be mind readers. We can have boundary issues. We can have disagreements. Sometimes competition can come up. What are some tips for first building healthy friendships? And then after that, we can talk about dealing with conflict in friendship. Yeah. So building healthy friendships, I would say one of the biggest things is 
something called mutuality, which means I am thinking about your needs and my needs at the same time. When you have unhealthy friendships, it's usually because one person is consistently getting their needs met at the expense of the other parties. So practically, what does this look like, right? I'm willing to drive to your place and you're willing to drive to my place. There's sort of even there, even in conversation, I want to hear you speak. You also welcome me to speak, right? You're not sort of monopolizing the conversation. Um, I'm trying to support you in your times of need, but also you're trying to support me in my times of need. There's not this one-sidedness. There's not one person giving and the other person only receiving, which tends to describe the sort of more toxic friendships. What about clear agreements? in terms of, like you said, the the driving thing, but what about like, I remember with one friendship, she asked me, what are things you expect of me as a friend? She goes like, for me, birthdays are no big deal. So if you expect me to make a big deal out of your birthday, you've got to let me know right off the bat because I Mm -hmm. just don't make big deals about birthdays. Can we be that bold? Can we just like say what we'd like? Can we say, hey, birthdays are a really big deal to me. I want you to make a big deal out of it. I actually really like that. I really like it because I think, a lot of the friendship issues come up because people have two different sets of expectations and not because someone is trying to cause harm, right? Like I'm not a big birthday person. I'm not a big gift person. So maybe I don't, you know, get you a huge gift for your birthday. It's not because I don't love you. And so I don't necessarily know that that's your expectation. So I, and, and I think also because like I talked about earlier, we tend to consistently think we're being rejected when we're not. If we don't have a larger framework to interpret the issue, then we might fall back on they're rejecting me, they don't like me. And again, that assumption is gonna, it's going to really harm and hurt the friendship because it's gonna make us withdraw from the person. So the more that, so for example, like I met up with a new friend and she was able to tell me straight up, hey, I have a lot of family issues going on. So I'm not always able to like answer text messages or like I need a lot of grace when it comes to finding a time to hang out, for example. And knowing that, now when I text her, she doesn't answer. I'm like, oh, yeah, she has a lot of family issues going on. Not that, oh, this is like personal to me and she doesn't like me, right? So being able to put those expectations up front can really facilitate the friendship. That being said, sometimes someone will have expectations of us that we cannot fulfill, right? Maybe this person's like, I would love to hang out every week. And we're just like, that's, I just don't have that type of time in my schedule. So also making sure we're being honest about our capacity to fulfill those expectations. Like, you know, let's say this person said, I don't answer your text message because I have all these this family stuff going on. If that was someone who I wanted to be close to, I probably wouldn't be able to accommodate that. But I knew that, you know, I have a lot of great friends. This person can be someone that's, you know, uh, that I don't have to necessarily depend on or rely on because I have other people for that. I can be flexible in that way, right? But sometimes we're not able to necessarily meet their expectations in a way that they're asking for. And in that case, I think the right thing to do is to be upfront about that as well and not try to, you know, be a good friend and give this person whatever you want. Like we need that moment of pause to actually go inward and assess, am I capable of this? Does this work for me? Or I think a a really good question thinking about mutuality, how do we make things work for both of us? Like, okay, is there a way that I can fulfill this friend's expectation? If so, what would that look like, right? Maybe your friend needs instrumental support. They need someone to pick their kid up on a weekday, right? And, you know, some days you're in the office and the office is right by the child's school. So you can say, you know, on Mondays when I go to the office, yes, I can do this. But on other days, you know, it's going to be too cumbersome to me to be able to go in and pick your child up at school. So we really need to be honest with ourselves 
when the clear expectations are requested, we need to be clear as to whether we're going to meet those expectations too. Right. And what about when we have uh, disagreements or we have what I call expectation hangovers? Uh, a friend, you know, <laughs> a friend lets us down or does something we're not happy with. Um, how do we handle that in a friendship and, and keep the friendship as well? How do we handle those difficult conversations? So, Christine, I used to be so. I mean, I still struggle with it, to be honest, but used to be really bad at it. I thought that being a good friend meant sucking it up. And, you know, we don't have a lot of scripts for conflict in friendship. The research does find that we tend to have these conflicts a lot more in our romantic relationship and in friends. If there's a problem, we suck it up or we withdraw. So, you know, and then I I read this study. I was having a lot of issues or expectation hangover, I guess, like you said, with one of my best friends. And I, I was kind of starting to withdraw. And I was like, this isn't good. You know, I'm trying to get over it, but it's, it's not happening. I'm not getting over it. So I ended up reading this study that found that having open empathic conflict is actually linked to deeper intimacy in the friendship. And there's this psychoanalyst, Virginia Goldner, and she talks about dynamic safety versus flaccid safety. Flaccid safety is like, we feel safe because nobody ever brings up the problems. Dynamic safety is we rupture, we repair. We rupture, we repair. We feel safe because we know if there's ever an issue, we can talk it, we can talk through it. And so I was like, wow, dynamic safety sounds really great. And so I think for me, I had to learn that I thought conflict looked a particular way that that was like combat. But then I learned this alternative form of conflict that's more like reconciliation and collaboration, right? So it's being able to bring up the issue in a particular way where you're first framing the conversation by saying, I love and value our friendship. I don't want things to get between us. That's why I bring this up. Mm. You're sharing those I statements. You're not attacking the other person. I feel, I feel, I'm feeling hurt that, you know, I've, I felt like I was the one to be consistently reaching out for a little bit of, of time, asking for their perspective, right? Cause it's a collaboration. You know, I was wondering what your take is on that. And then sharing what your needs are in the future. Like, oh, maybe in the future, you know, if you made the effort to call me like once every other week, that would make me feel so valued and so loved. Is that something that you're open to? So it's more like that negotiation rather than that attack. And again, that's actually linked to having deeper intimacy within the friendship and people that are very good at friendship and really value it. They tend to choose to engage in this constructive conflict because here's the thing. We often are afraid to bring up conflict because we think, you know, our friend will just get pissed and leave and the friendship will end. So we choose to swallow the conflict when, and then by doing so, we often guarantee that it will end because we end up withdrawing. Right. And if we bring up the conflict, we at least have a chance. We have hope that the friendship can continue. So we need to be able to bring up that issue, do it in a loving way. I call it like making the unsaid said within the friendship. Mm, and so important. And I think it's sometimes harder in friendship because we don't spend as much time with the person. So we just brush things under the rug, brush things under the rug, brush things under the rug, and then they compound. And I know when I've had these conversations with people, I started off with saying, I really care about our friendship. And that's why I'm having this conversation with you because it really, really matters to me. And in all those conversations with people, I've always gotten closer. And it's like, it, it, to me, if I'm going to have a friendship at this point in my life, 
I don't want to have any resentments. I don't want to have any unspoken stuff. I, I really want to have that authentic close friendship, especially for my close friends. Like I, I have my inner circle of friends and then I have like friend acquaintances, friends. I'm talking about like my inner mm-hmm. circle friends that are, that I call my soul family. And we, oh. to maintain that healthy relationship, we have to have those honest conversations. And speaking of honesty, yeah. were, were you going to say something else about that? I'm just a hundred percent in ingredients. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to, I didn't want to cut you off and change subject too soon. In terms of expiration dates on friendships, when, you know, like just like all relationships don't last forever, sometimes friendships don't. How do we know when a relationship has, a friendship has reached its expiration date? So here's the tricky thing. I think on the one hand, friendships do ebb and flow, right? Like there's people that you'll be really close to now that in maybe the next couple of years you won't feel as close to, but then a couple of years after that, you'll feel really close to them again. And there's this, this study on long distance friends that found that, you know, the more we can perceive our friendships as flexible rather than flat, uh, fragile, the more likely they'll last, the more that we can see if there is an ebb, not assuming that the friendship is over, but rather, you know, it's going to go back into flow mode eventually so that we'll still reach out to them. We'll still initiate with them, even if we haven't spoken in a while. But the tricky thing about that is like, how do you know the difference between this is an ebb and the larger ebb and flow? And this is a sign that the friendship should end. And I think my, my thoughts on that is that is the problem that you're having in this friendship, is it a chapter of a book or is it the entire book? right? Has this problem been a long-standing problem for a long, long time? Or does it seem like this friend, I know this friend loves me. I know this friend is invested in me and we're having some situation come up, some circumstance come up, right? You know, mm-hmm. when you trust that, that you value someone and they value you and you have an issue, that's just like normal parts of intimacy, right? I mean, I, I, I try to encourage people not to compartmentalize intimacy. Like the things that you need to do for your spouse to keep that relationship healthy are similar to the things that you need to do for a friend. It's not, you know, friendship isn't a different species. You have to work through conflict there. You have to work through conflict in your friendship. But again, if you see in a larger way, we've always had this incompatibility and now I'm kind of at my wit's end about it. That might be a sign that you need to end the friendship rather than mend it. Yeah, and what's a good way to end it? So... It depends. I think if it's a newer friendship, so this is the tricky part. Like on my Instagram, I ask people, would you rather someone just tell you if they want to end a friendship or, or kind of just try to back away slowly and be busy? And, you know, I think people were literally split 50-50. And so my understanding of this is that if it's a newer friendship, some people would rather you just back away. But if it's an established friendship, you can really hurt people by just not giving them a reason because you don't give them closure. And when someone doesn't have closure, they experience something called ambiguous loss, which mm-hmm. means it's harder for them to grieve because they have they don't have a reason and things were so uncertain. So it's kind of like by you avoiding that conversation, you make them grieve twice for you wow. and for them. Wow, that just landed with so many people right now. I think they're thinking of so many relationships and friendships where they're like, oh, that's why it was so hard for me to let it go. That's why I'm so obsessed with it. That's why I can't get this person out of my head because I had ambiguous loss. I had, I had no closure. So so important whether whether we're the ones that is is are left or or leaving to yeah have the communication. So sorry to interrupt your flow there. I just really wanted to land that for people because I know a lot of people are really going to relate to that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if you're like feeling up, you know, feel like you can't get this relationship out of your head. 
and you don't know what went wrong, that's very human. So we do want to have that conversation. And I think when you have this conversation, good conflict, I feel like unhealthy conflict, right? It's like, I'm sharing my point and it's all negative and I can't see any of your perspective. So it's very rigid. Like I see things this way. I don't see any of what you say. And I only see the negative in this moment. Whereas healthy conflict, it's a lot more nuanced. It's this thing was good. This thing wasn't working. You have a say in this too, as to, you know, the dynamics of our friendship. So that's what I think a good ending is too. You're able to say, you know, this friendship isn't working for me anymore because I feel like we maybe don't have the same values anymore. It's hard for me to feel as comfortable expressing myself, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. But you're also able to acknowledge like, and I want to acknowledge that even though I don't think this friendship is going to work for me going forward, that you have brought so much to my life while we have been friends. And I really appreciated this moment. And I really appreciated how you helped me grow in this way, right? It's called a commemorative friendship where we're able to commemorate the good, even while we're in a state of ending. And this is really important for both parties because of something called the recency effect, which is our tendency to take to disproportionately remember the most recent moment. So if that ending is bad and we're telling each other how much we both think we each other sucks mutually, right? It's gonna color our perception of that whole friendship because of that recency effect. We're gonna think about that whole friendship as a big waste of our time and drain on our energy. Whereas if we're able to maintain that nuance that at the end of the day, this didn't work, but there was there were many beautiful things about this, then we are able to have a memory of this friendship that's going to bring us solace and bring us peace. Mm, I think that's so, so important. In your research, did you find anything in terms of, you know, how many good close friendships we have? Like how many really close friendships we can maintain at once? Are there, are there people that have too many friends and they actually should scale it back and focus on really quality friendships? Yeah, so... There is a tension between how big our network gets and how deep we go with each person in our network. So if you're the person that's always making new friends, it might be that it's harder for you to feel like you're getting as much depth and quality time with certain people in that network. It's hard for me to say which route to go because to be honest, our patterns here tend to differ throughout our life. In the early 20s, mid 20s, that's when we have the most friends because we're looking to explore our identity. And like I said, friends really expose us to new identities um, that we can take on. So, you know, people in their young 20s, very appropriate for them to have this huge network of friends. As we get older, we tend to choose to be more, to have higher standards for friendship, to only want very quality connections in our life because we're thinking, I only have this amount of time left. I have to spend it with people that I feel really close to, really safe with. So older folks tend to, willingly shed their connections more and more and be more satisfied with these fewer really quality connections. If you want me to make a generalization, what the research does find is that after about three close friends, the mental health of benefits of additional friendship starts to Mm -hmm. peter out. So at least three, I'll say. And then outside of that, it depends on whether, you know, you want to experience adventure and novelty and new sides of yourself, or you just want, you know, a lot of closeness and intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. And highlight again, you you talked a little bit about it in how friendships help us in our relationships, but what are some of the other benefits of friendship in your research? What have you found? How do friends really add to our life? 
so they have friends play a really foundational role in in making us who we are. There's this psychiatrist, Harry Stack Sullivan, and he kind of argues that like friends are the first relationships where we actually think about someone else's needs. Like we don't do that with our parents. We only start to do that with our friends where the relationship is actually reciprocal and they lay the foundation for reciprocity in the relationships going forward. And he also kind of has this theory of how friends help us become whole because when we feel ashamed of something, it sort of hijacks our whole identity because it's like we have this thing we feel ashamed about and then all of our energy is spent trying to hide this thing that feels so shameful to us. So it kind of takes all of our personhood to, to hide this shame. But then we share that shame with a friend and hopefully they're loving and accepting. And we don't feel as much like we need to hide this thing because someone has showed us that we're still lovable, even with the shame. And that's how that shame becomes no longer our whole personalities, but sorts, whatever it was that's triggered the shame becomes a part of who we are rather than all of who we are, because we're able to share that intimacy with our friends and experience that love with from them we are then able to you know become our full selves and become whole and feel less less controlled by flaws or things mm. that we feel critical about within ourselves mm. so true friendship has just made me a better person <laughs> overall i i just Same. i love my friends my my best friend since i was 22 was there when my daughter was born and I was at two of her births of three of her children. And it's just like the level of intimacy. You can't get more intimate than that, you know? And it was just so beautiful and sacred that, you know, the, the people I wanted there were both my husband and my best friend. Um, oh, that's they, so beautiful. Yeah, they just both play different roles in my life. So, and I have many, many women that I call besties and soul sisters. And, um, you know, coming from someone who didn't have friends as a child, and it was something I really struggled with. I would say it's something I'm very proud of because one of the things that I'm most proud of in my life is that I've been able to have friends. And so for anyone listening, as we round out, and we've, we've touched on this, but I just, I know my audience, so I wanted to circle back on it a little bit. For someone who has friendship wounds, was bullied, um, has been betrayed, you know, one of the things I hear at my women's retreat every year is, oh, being in a room full of women is torture to me. I'm so uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Women have mm-hmm. just stabbed me in the back and been competitive and I compare myself to other women. I just, so overcoming friendship wounds. Any advice on that? Yeah, I think the wound really hurts us because we get into new a new friendship. And we assume that the same thing will occur, that the wound will happen again, right? So these women that are, you know, coming to to be in your community, Christine, and they have these wounds and their assumption, whether unconscious or conscious, is that if I get close to these women, they will betray me too, right? And that, you don't have any actual evidence of that. That's just something that you're bringing to the table because of this wound. And maybe these people will love you. Maybe these people will be safe people. Maybe these people will be the type of woman that will help you develop a new idea of what it means to be a friend with another woman, right? And so being able to remind yourself that just because this happened in the past doesn't mean that it's going to happen right now. Being able to maintain a sense of optimism and hope and with an understanding that people will surprise you is really, really important. Because again, if you're going in thinking, 
you know, these women are going to betray me or they're going to, you know, talk behind my back, right? How is that affecting how you're showing up around these women? You know, you're probably very withdrawn and you're probably not very friendly and you're probably coming off as very cold. So it takes going into new interactions with, with something called habitual open-mindedness, which is reminding yourself that you know nothing about the people in front of you and that you're going to let, let them show you who they are over time rather than superimposing that wound onto, onto what's happening currently. I think that's so important. And you've said that something similar different ways throughout this podcast. I'm so glad you have because it's such a great reminder of we're not in fourth grade anymore. You're not 15 anymore. This woman is not that woman that hurts you. And super, super key. Final question for you before we get to where people can get the book and where people can connect with you. What's made you so passionate about researching friendship? (laughs) Honestly, it was breakups. Breakups. I turned to friends. We had this wellness group. We met up, we cooked, we did yoga, we meditated, and I was in a state of guilt and repentance because here I was thinking that the only legitimate form of love was this romantic love, and I had all this love around me that I didn't appreciate. And I started to wonder, like, why doesn't this form of love matter? Why have I been taught that, especially as a woman, my whole worth is dependent on finding a romantic partner when this is a worthy form of love, like this makes me feel full and feel whole. So I just really began to question a lot of the messages that had been passed down to me that I felt like were very harmful to me and harmful to, I think, us in general, whether we're in a relationship, whether we're not in a relationship and feeling like we don't have to love on such a hierarchy. There just Mm. doesn't have to be this hierarchy with, you know, spouse, at the top be all end all and friends don't really matter or nice to have or so auxiliary. And I think it would benefit us all if we can let go of this kind of extreme hierarchy that we put on love because we Mm. all need love. And in a society that's so lonely, we can't afford to throw out any form of it. Agree. Agree. Oh, this has been such a beautiful, refreshing conversation. Thank you so much, Marissa, for all of this. Please tell people the name of your book again and where they can find it and where they can connect with you. Of course. Yeah, Christine, thank you so much for having me. This was a really, really great conversation. And I I think I really appreciated hearing about your journey. I think other people will as well, just because you're a sign of hope for people mm. that, hey, even if you've struggled in the past, you can create something new. And there's the beauty of friendship is like, it's this regenerative relationship throughout your life. Like, yes, you know, it's hard to make a new family member or a new spouse, but you can always make new friends. So there's always hope there. Um, my book is called Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends, sold anywhere you buy books. I also talk about friendship on my Instagram at Dr. Marissa G. Franco, that's D-R-M-A-R-I-S-A-G-F-R-A-N-C-O. And on my website, drmarissagfranco.com, you can take a quiz that assesses your strengths and weaknesses as a friend, gives you some suggestions, or reach out for speaking engagements on connection and belonging. Beautiful. Well, I just followed you on Instagram. So now we're, we're podcast and Instagram friends. We'll follow you back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. Well, this is beautiful. Thank you for your work. Thank you for bringing more love and awareness to the power of friendship. And I hope this inspires everyone to actually, I'm not going to hope. I really challenge and invite everyone to either nurture a friendship you have. So after this podcast, share it, share it with a friend that you have and say, Hey, 
I love this episode because it made me realize how grateful I am for my friendship with you. And I want you to listen to it too. You can say whatever you want, but share this episode with a friend. And if you're like, oh, I have no one to share it with, then take something that Dr. Marissa gave us today. And within the next week, initiate some conversation with someone that could lead to a friendship. Is there any challenge you'd like to give our audience before we sign off? Yeah, I would say scroll through your phone contacts or your text and find someone to reconnect with and send them a text that says, hey, I was just thinking about you, wanted to check in, see how you're doing, take it from there. Mm, I love it. I love it. Thank you, Marissa. Appreciated this conversation so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Christine. Have a good day. 